Welcome back to Scripture Central. I hope you're taking advantage of everything on our website. I just love the archives and the know-whys and everything else in addition to the Come Follow Me. But I'm here today to talk about 2 Corinthians. We're in the last week of Come Follow Me on 2 Corinthians, this wonderful book where Paul is writing back to express his love for the saints. And in chapters 7 through 13, he focuses on repentance, their welfare contributions, and his authority that was being attacked. So it's sort of a counterattack or defense of that. Just as a reminder, 2 Corinthians was written quite early. We think that it was one of his first books written, probably at the end of his third mission. He's already left Ephesus, as you can see on the map, and he's trying to get to Corinth to see how the saints are doing, but it's too late in the season to go across the sea, so he has to go by land. So he goes up over northern Turkey and northern Greece before he drops down into Achaia, which is where Corinth was then. Timothy is also one of the co-senders with Paul, his beloved junior companion. And just like last week and the week before, he's writing to those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knows these people well. He taught them for 18 months. After he wrote the first letter, which I called his spanking, um, we call it the first letter, but really wasn't the first letter. There was other correspondence before. In fact, in the book of Acts, you can almost trace seven letters by Paul to Corinth. But the letter that we call 1 Corinthians uh, has a lot of corrections. And in that letter, he was very worried that they would receive it harshly. But Titus delivered it and is now meeting Paul. And Paul and Titus meet up probably near Philippi, up in northern Macedonia, northern Greece. And he hears the good news and then is able to share the last part of this letter on the news that Titus has sent. I've got an outline for the book that's not only in my handouts, but also on my slides. Chapter 7 talks about the need for repentance, and he's still calling the Corinthians to repentance, whereas chapters 8 and 9 get down to the need for their offerings for the poor. Their tithes and offerings, their generosity for the rest of the church is a great example of the unity within the saints. And then chapters 10, 11, and 12, Paul talks about his authority. And he's begging the saints basically to not speak evil against the Lord's servants. And then he ends in chapter 13 with this admonition, this exhortation and a beautiful greeting and benediction. One of the things I love about this book is that Paul knows these saints well. It's very personal. He, he cares so deeply about them and you get the intensity of his emotion. Let's start in chapter 7, verse 1. This is from the NIV. Dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness and reverence to the Lord. I want to talk about two of those words. The first one is contaminates. Contaminates is also used in the King James as the word filthiness. And other translations have different words. But what it means is something that's unclean. It's staining. It's defiling or polluting someone. Also, the word perfecting. Now, in our generation, that word has severe meanings. But in the time of Paul, it meant to complete, to become whole, to bring to an end, to accomplish, to execute. He's trying to say, I'm trying to complete your conversion. I want to take you all the way. And I believe Paul is talking about the ordinances. Earlier in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians both, we have references to the ordinances. I think he's saying, I want to complete your commitment so that you're receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost on a regular basis and you're able to receive the promises of exaltation. Verse 2 and 3 continue on. Receive us. We've wronged no man. Then skipping down to 3. Ye are in our hearts 
to die and live with you. Now, I feel like this is such a great example. After Paul has spoken harshly to them, he now turns around and he's going to express his, his love. It's just like the counsel that Joseph Smith received in Liberty Jail. After you reprove them, make sure you show forth love right afterward. That's what Paul's doing here. It's really a very tender letter. Verses 4 to 16 talks about the joys over the news that Titus has brought, that he's so thrilled they're doing well. And in verse 4, it reads in the BSB translation, Great is my confidence in you. Great is my pride in you. I am filled with encouragement in all your troubles. My joy overflows. Now, I can just see this fabulous missionary so happy that the saints are willing to change, are willing to repent, are willing to come back to the fold. And he is thrilled. Um, You know, remember the Lord says, your joy will be full. And that is, I feel, what Paul is expressing right here in this letter. He continues on in verse 9. I rejoice not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended. I just love this idea, this whole um, principle that our sorrow, our guilt is to lead us to repentance. It's not to depress us and to keep us down and to paralyze us into not acting. If we feel like we've offended God, if we are feeling those feelings, we just need to repent. Take those feelings to come unto Christ, to come to our mediator, help him carry our yoke and let him receive our repentant, broken, contrite hearts. It's a fabulous message that Paul is talking about here. I'm glad you sorrowed unto repentance. That's what it's for. But if we use guilt to become depressed and discouraged and anxious, we're not using it for the reasons that the Lord has given it to us. But the Corinthians used it for the right reason. Before we leave the subject of repentance, I just want to tie it to President Nelson. Do you remember General Conference a couple years ago when he taught, does everyone need to repent? The answer is yes. Too many people consider repentance as punishment, something to be avoided except for the most serious circumstances. But this feeling of being penalized is engendered by Satan. He tries to block us from looking to Christ, who stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us. I love the call for daily repentance. I think repentance is one of the greatest gifts of my day. I feel motivated. I feel happier. And when I repent, I feel the Spirit, especially when I start my prayers with repentance. Then I feel the Spirit more when I pray. And now continuing on in verse 11. I'm still in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, but I'd like to read it from the NIV translation. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves from indignation. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Now, the reason why I chose the NIV translation there is because I didn't like the King James Version use of revenge. The word justice in NIV is revenge. I don't think there's any revenge in Paul's heart, and I don't think there's any revenge in a repentant person's heart. So I think that word is communicating something differently than the doctrine I think is taught. You know, Paul so loves these. He's not trying to get revenge on these saints, and they don't need to have revenge on God or anything else. I, I think there's a misunderstanding there. As we move on now to verses 14 and 15, Paul is saying, I talked really highly of you to my junior companions, to Timothy and Titus from the BSB. 
I was not embarrassed by anything I had boasted to him about you, but just as everything we said to you was true, and his affection for you is even greater. And as you welcomed him with fear and trembling, that phrase is used nine times in Paul's letters. That is a very familiar phrase, probably from either an Aramaic or a Hebrew phrase that comes from um, ancient texts, is one of Paul's favorite vocabularies, you know, fear and trembling, meaning they're going to reverence the Lord. They're going to be humble and meek and contrite. Chapter eight now moves ahead about the collection of these financial offerings. And we had already heard about this in 1 Corinthians. He already had told them in chapter 16, at the very end of 1 Corinthians, he said, start gathering your money because I'm going to come back again and I want to have all your tithes and offerings ready. Well, now in this letter, he returns to that subject. And I think this is one of the reasons why he wrote the letter is because he wants to make sure all the offerings have been gathered. And we read in verse one and two in the NIV, brothers and sisters, We want you to know about the Macedonian churches. So up where he is up now in Northern Greece, in the midst of a very severe trial, their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So he says, I want the men and the women participating. That's why I chose the NIV was to make sure that you heard that he's talking to both genders here. And then he says, I am so proud of the people I'm with up here, your neighbors who are just north of you a couple of hours or a day's journey, I guess, without a car. (laughs) But I'm so proud of them for being so generous, wanting to give to the poor, even though they are in dire straits right now. And sometimes the more we sacrifice, the more we need the Lord's blessings. And so he gives those to us. In verse three, continuing in the NIV, it reads, I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. He's showing that the law of consecration is not something that you do without voluntary responsibility. You have to choose to do it. You have to be accountable and you have to have a stewardship. We learned back in the book of Acts that they were living the law of consecration very, very early in the early Christian church. And that is something that we need to work on. We do not want rich and poor. In the church, we want everyone to have enough. Continuing on in chapter 8 to verse 6, the BSB reads, So we urge Titus to help complete your act of grace, just as he had started it. I'm not making a demand, but I am testing the sincerity of your love. I skip down to verse 8 as well. So he's saying, I I don't want to make this anything but volunteer, but you told me you were going to give, and so now I'm just following through to make sure everything's in order before I come. Because, and then he gives the underlying principle of why they have to live the law of consecration. There's no poor among them. We read about this in the book of Moses, in Acts, in the Doctrine and Covenants. Lots of times in the Doctrine and Covenants. 42 is when the law of consecration is given. But then we read it about again in section 51 and 55 and 59. And 70. The Doctrine and Covenants is filled with information on how we are to take care of each other to have no poor among us. Verse 9 and the BSB reads, Jesus Christ, and then skipping ahead a little bit, became poor so that through his poverty, you might be enriched. Now, some of you may be wondering back to, wait a minute, Jesus was born in a poor family. You know, we learned that in, in the Gospel of Luke, but he chose to not earn an extravagant living and to live extravagantly. He chose to focus all of his energies on taking care of others, on ministering and serving and healing and preaching. He chose to live in poverty to bless everyone around him. 
And of course, we can also take this symbolically. And he gave of his entire self. He completely consecrated his life for our lives. And we see the law of consecration in our Savior beautifully in that regard. Moving on, still in chapter 8, but verses 10 and 11 in the NIV, it reads, Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work. And then skipping down to verse 11, according to your means. He doesn't want anyone to go overboard. He says, you promised you would do this. Can you please now fulfill that promise? I need you to be consistent with your promises. Continuing on now in verse 13 with the NIV. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. This is one of the keys of the law of consecration. It's not so that you're working your heart out so somebody else can be lazy. It's so that we all work together. He uses that word equality twice in these verses. It's not about some people working and some people not working. It's everyone giving all they can to the Lord's kingdom and to the poor. It's a beautiful statement of what we're striving to live now. I also feel like this is such an important message to prepare us for the Lord's second coming. Our part of the restoration taught repeatedly in the Doctrine and Covenants that we, the Lord cannot come again until we are a Zion society, until we are living the law of consecration. And as soon as the saints are ready to live it, I believe our Savior will come. We can cut short the calamities of the last days. This is something that is so applicable to our generation as well. Moving on to verse 13, again in the NIV, he's quoting actually from Exodus, Exodus 16. He says, the one who gathers much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Do you remember what he's talking about? This is manna. He's going back to the children of Israel in Egypt, gathering the manna. He says it it was just the right amount for everyone. And the Lord supplied exactly the right amount. We can do this now on our own voluntarily without the Lord measuring out exactly how much everybody needed to get before the worms came in. Continuing on in 820 to 21, and I'm going to read the BSB here. We hope to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this generous gift. For we are taking great care to do what is right. And Paul goes on to say, I'm sending you Titus and somebody else, obviously someone they trusted very well that the Corinthian saints knew. He said, we're being very careful. Titus is very honest and upright in his collecting of these funds. We don't want any dishonesty in the Lord's money. And then he finishes up chapter eight with a wonderful message on love. And I want to read it from the NLT translation. So show them your love and prove to them the churches that are boasting about you is justified. Now, remember, Paul has finished the gifts of the Spirit in his first letter, and he talked all about how important charity was. He said, you know, this is more important than all the other gifts combined, and we need to seek charity more than anything else. So now he says, show your love for the other saints. The saints in Jerusalem are in dire straits. Please be generous in your tithes and your offerings. Moving ahead to chapter 9, he talks about that these charitable offerings are not about money. They're actually about your faith. Verse 6, he says, If you're going to sow sparingly, you shall reap also sparingly. And he who sows bountifully, and then he goes on and talks about you'll, you'll reap bountifully. And skipping ahead to chapter 9, verse 8 in the NIV, he reads, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I am one who has learned that tithing is a matter of faith and not by finances. When I didn't have money, 
when my brothers didn't have money, when my sisters didn't have money, when my father-in-law didn't have money, and they paid their tithing, and they were prudent and careful, things worked out. But when my dear friends did not pay their tithing, they lost their faith, and it often was one of the steps to leaving their testimonies. I'm so grateful that the Lord has shown us it's not about money. It's about consecrating our all to God. Chapter 9, verse 7, it reads, God loveth the cheerful giver. And continuing on in verse 10 in the BSB, he says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your store of seeds. You will increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's the Lord who's going to plant the seed for you. And if you are able to give some of your seed corn or whatever it is, your seed wheat, obviously they didn't have corn in the ancient world. Um, But if you're able to give some of your seeds, the Lord is going to multiply your harvest. And more important than any kind of financial reimbursement, the Lord will bless you with righteousness, will bless you with the spirit, will bless you with eternal holiness. You know, it's sanctification. It's a beautiful message. And then he finishes up chapter nine with one of the most beautiful verses in our section today. I'm going to read it from the NIV, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, I feel like the reason why he's ending this is he's asking for people to be generous. He says, if you think you're giving a lot, just think of what our Savior has given you. Think of eternal life. Think of the rewards that are there. Think of his atoning sacrifice. All of us have been redeemed by him. Remember, that means bought back, paid for, as if we were taken by a pirate ship and the Savior came and paid every penny for us. Well, we were taken by Satan. We are fallen and we were bought back by the Savior. So he's saying, be generous in your offerings. It's such a blessing to just keep it in perspective of all that the Savior has given us. And now moving on to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the first 10 or 11 verses talk about Paul's weaknesses. And he is replying to those who are accusing him and being too overbearing in his letter. He starts out in verse 1 by saying, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. And then moving ahead in verse 6, in the BSB he reads, We will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. So, you know, it's it's in epistles. We only get half the story. We really don't know quite what's going on here in this chapter 10, but we can read between the lines and it sounds as if not only are people questioning his authority, but it sounds as if some people are saying, you know, in your letters, you're really harsh. And then when you come in person, you're all soft and warm and fuzzy. But he says, I am going to call for discipline if people have not Um, straightened out when I come. And remember, Corinth is a very, very wicked city. And so what they think is sinful is not necessarily what Paul called sinful. And Paul says, I am going to ask for complete um, purity in the church when I come. Moving ahead to verses seven through nine in the BSB, it reads, you are looking at outward appearances. Even if I boast somewhat excessively about the authority of the Lord gave us, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you by my letters. Please don't think my letters are inappropriate. I'm calling you to repentance. I'm not trying to scare you. I don't want you to leave the faith because of fear. Paul continues to address this issue of his authority. He wants to talk about all who are apostles. Remember, an apostle is one who is sent. There are many apostles in the New Testament that are not necessarily part of the Quorum of the Twelve. At least we're we're not told they're part of the quorum. It sounds as if they were different. 
James, for example, and Barnabas and Paul, they're never mentioned to be part of the quorum of the twelve. So I'm going to continue on now reading in verse 12 and skipping down to 14, both in the NIV. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. We are not going too far in our boasting. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting the work done by others. So he's saying, hey, if you're thinking I'm boasting, why don't you look at yourself? And other people are claiming that they are that they are that they did the work I did. You know, I, I, I think this is what he's trying to say. And I'm sorry for leaving the King James so often, but in these books of the epistles, it's very difficult to step outside of some of the archaic language. And so I just wanted to open up other translations to help you understand the text a little bit better. Verse 17 and 18 is actually quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, 24 starts out, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul just cites that. He knows his Old Testament so well. His letters are saturated with Old Testament quotes. And I don't think he has his own set of scriptures there right with him. You know, it's very expensive to have scriptures. And he's traveling and he's it's shipwrecked and things like that. You know, it's not like these things were available. And yet he has them memorized. Such a good example. He really is a scriptorian. He continues on. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. He says, don't listen to these people who are telling you they're great. I was commended by this by the Lord. I was commissioned to be a missionary. I am an apostle because Jesus Christ called me. You know, I think it's very good for our day and age too. Let's not talk evil of the Lord's anointed because then we're talking evil of the Lord. Moving on to chapter 11, Paul does something sort of funny here. He is now going to defend himself, as he says, a full speech. And I think what he's doing is these people who have been denouncing him have used this silly kind of logic. And Paul says, I'm going to use the same silly kind of logic to defend myself that they attacked me with. He starts out in verse one. I'll read it from the NIV. I hope you will put up with me with a little foolishness. Then in verse two, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin in Christ. And you remember back in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah and Hosea and Ezekiel, they talked a lot about Jehovah being married to Zion or married to Jerusalem and their offspring was Israel. And here now in the New Testament, we have very similar analogies and it's with Christ being married to the church. And Paul is saying, I arranged this marriage. We have one husband, that is Christ Jesus. And I want to present you completely committed to him as a chaste virgin. I don't want you filled with barnacles of sin. And so he begs them to repent and to become one with Christ so that they then can be like the bride ready for the bridegroom. This is the same analogy that John the Revelator uses in the book of Revelation when Christ comes. He says, the bridegroom can come only when the bride is ready. So we as the church are the bride and we need to be ready to receive our, our Savior when he comes. Continuing on in chapter 11, verse 3 says, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's warning them that the people who are taking him away are probably being motivated by satanic influences. You know, anything that's taking you away from Christ is from the devil. Even if it appears good, if it's taking you away from Christ, it's wrong. 
He says in verse four, this is still chapter 11 in the BSB. If someone comes and proclaims a Jesus other than the one we proclaimed, you put up with it way too easily. Now, we also have Paul addressing the same thing when he gets to the Galatians. And he says, don't trust anybody else. Well, some of our Christian other faith traditions use this uh, to say, I won't believe your traditions on Christianity because Paul says, don't believe anybody else. Well, I always, in those discussions, go back to the idea that we have to trust the Spirit. The only way we know which is right, which is truth, is by a witness of the Spirit. And how do we do that? Not only by their fruit ye shall know them, but by studying it, by learning it. And I invite them to make that decision. I believe I am following Christ's gospel. Why don't you take a look at it and, and pray and ask the Lord? Verse 5 in the NIV continues on in chapter 11. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. What he's trying to say is, you know, don't think that I'm not an apostle because I'm not one of the 12 or I'm not an apostle because I wasn't there with Christ. You know, I'm still called and commissioned. I'm still, this is my responsibility. Please stop speaking evil of me. I'm, I'm commissioned by our Savior. You know, he's really trying to defend himself here. In verse 6, he says, although I am not a polished speaker, I am certainly not lacking in knowledge. And we have made this clear unto you in every possible way. Now, I just want to go back to the book of Acts and remind you, Paul is extremely well-educated. He's from Tarsus, which is the, the major capital of elocution. The education there was phenomenal. He learned how to speak there. He has been invited to come and speak on Mars Hill, you know, the most important place to go if you're an orator. And he was invited back to Mars Hill. Uh, you know, he, he says, I think sarcastically, or is he saying, I didn't come and speak to you by the philosophies of men and with great oration as I had been trained. I came to speak to you through the power of the Spirit. I think that's what he's trying to say here. But we do not need to fear that we don't understand who's writing this letter. Also in chapter 11, he next addresses the challenge that came up with money. And some people are saying that you should be paid for your preaching. Paul just goes crazy over this one. Because do you remember when he was acting as a tent maker and he was actually paying for his own way for his mission? So he says in chapter 11, verse 7, was it a sin for me by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? And then skipping down to verse 9, he repeats this. He says, I have kept myself from being a burden to you. He says, now, why are you attacking me? Because I didn't take money. You think I, I, didn't, I didn't deserve money? Is that what you're thinking? You know, he, he's, he's just, we don't have his letters. We're having to read between the lines. We don't have the conversation that he had with Titus and the Corinthians. And I think this is what's happening. At least when you put all the pieces of the puzzle together, that's what it looks like. Verse 11 in the NIV, he says, why? Because I did not love you? God knows I do. I wasn't doing this because I just have a commission. I do it because I love you. He's so good about this charity. And I think the reason why he knows so much about it and emphasizes it so much is because he feels it towards those people that he's teaching. Continuing on in chapter 11 to verse 12 to 14, he gives this image in the BSB of a wolf in sheep's clothing. But he says, I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to undercut the false apostles, deceitful workers, the masquerading as apostles of Christ, and, and then he skips down to verse 14, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is Satan who is the great counterfeit. 
It is Satan who's always trying to deceive and he's trying to counterfeit our savior. He wants to be the God of this world. He wants to be the Prince of Peace. You know, he is constantly trying to act like our savior and yet pulls the rug out. So it's, it's very, very, he's a very clever, awful person. Paul continues on in chapter 11. I can match what anyone else dares to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am speaking like I'm out of my mind. I am so much more. Paul is saying, I have just spent my entire adult life for serving the Lord. Please realize that what they're claiming is not accurate. And what they're saying about me is not accurate. And then in chapter 11, from about verse 16 to clear down to 33, Paul starts listing all the atrocities. He's been doing this foolish boasting. And now he says, you don't think that I've suffered? Let me tell you a little bit about it. And he lists his whole list of sufferings. I just want to remind you that in the Judaic world, they limited things like how many times you could be scourged or lashed. You know, it can't be more than 40. So the rabbi said, well, then let's make it 39 to make sure we don't miscount because we don't want to disobey God. Um, But in the Greco-Roman world, they didn't have those kinds of limits. So as we begin reading in chapter 11, verse 23, he says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, that's the whipping, that's the scourging, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft, five times received I 40 stripes save one, thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. That's their vernacular for 24 hours. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils with my own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils of the city, perils of the wilderness and the sea and among false brethren and the painfulness in watchings often, in hunger and thirst and in fastings often. He's just pouring out his heart. But we get a remarkable autobiographical lesson here. This man suffered for God. And as I look at the challenges of our day and age, I just feel like I have nothing to complain about. Chapter 11, verse 32, then gives a specific example. And he remembers back in Damascus, and he gives you a few more details on the story. We read about it back in the book of Acts, but I'll just read it here too. In Damascus, the governor had secured the city in order to arrest me. This is in the BSB translation. I'm skipping down to verse 33 now. I was lowered in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his grasp. You know, the Lord will protect his anointed ones and he will protect you if you keep your covenants. I know he has protected me many times. Chapter 12 begins this wonderful chapter on the visions of heaven. From verses one through six, he talks about the third heaven. And he starts out in verse one, boasting is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I don't want to, I don't want to just rehearse all the things I've done for the Lord. I want to move on to tell you, to share with you some of the visions that I have received. In chapter 12, verse two, I'll read from the DRB translation. I know a man in Christ above 14 years ago, caught up even to the third heaven. Now, this is interesting because he's not, he changes it to third person. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else who had a vision? Well, we're very blessed to have something from Joseph Smith on this verse. And the prophet says in the history of the church, 
Paul ascended into the third heavens and he could understand the three principal rounds of Jacob's ladder, the telestial, the terrestrial, and the celestial glories or kingdoms where Paul saw and heard things which were not lawful for him to utter. I could explain a hundredfold more than I ever have on the glories of the kingdoms manifested to me in the vision. Were it permitted and were the people prepared to receive them, I hope that we as a people can become prepared to receive more light and truth. And once we are ready, I know the prophets will be able to share more. Verse 5 to 7 says, Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the message of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. He says, I'm not going to tell you about my visions. I don't want to exalt myself because the Lord has kept me humble. And he's kept me humble because I have a thorn in the flesh. You know, he uses this image that's very clear in that environment where thorns are just filling the countryside. In the NIV, it says, the Lord has kept me from being conceited. So sometimes our weaknesses are for purposes that we don't understand. But spiritually, how nice to keep us humble. How nice of God to keep us meek. You know, I'd much rather be meek and humble now and have the opportunity for the blessings of the Lord hereafter than being proudful and smart and famous or anything else. Paul has the visions of the eternities to keep him humble as well. Chapter 12, verse 8 and 9 reads, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. I love this verse. We've told elsewhere in Scripture that our weaknesses take us to the Lord, that our weaknesses are going to become strengths even. And I have found that to be in my life. You know, I'm a dyslexic. I'm going blind. And yet the Lord allows me to focus my time and energies to see and to do what I need to do. I feel like because I have these weaknesses, I am much more clarified on what I want to spend my time doing. We also read about this in the Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter 4, verse 7. The Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by His grace that we have power to do all things. And in 2 Nephi chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Out of weaknesses we shall be made strong. And then we have a lot more, but I'm just going to read first from Ether chapter 12. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weaknesses. I give unto men weaknesses that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And I could have also read to you in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the Pearl of Great Price, there are so many verses on this. Anytime we have a physical or an emotional or or a spiritual weakness, remember they can be used for good if they will take us to our knees. Anything that takes us to our knees can be a blessing in our lives. Chapter 12, verse 10 continues on in the NIV. I delight in weaknesses, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. You know, you don't get too proud when you're constantly being attacked. And so Paul says, I like being made humbled. I like having the opportunity to constantly fall on my knees and plead with my Lord. It's just a powerful image, you know, starting from the time of Noah's Ark. These weaknesses have had a purpose to them. God is giving them to us. Some are tailor-made and some just, as Adam and Eve were told, are part of mortality. 
verse 10 finishes up in the NIV by saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That is a powerful promise from the scriptures. I remember once I was reading about um, a modern prophet named John Tater, who also addressed this subject. I'd like to read it to you. It's in the Journal of Discourses. It is necessary that we pass through certain ordeals in order that we may be purified. We have learned many things through suffering. We call it suffering, but I call it the school of experience. I never did bother my head much over about these things. I do not today. What are these things for? Why, it's for the good men that should be tried. Why is it, in fact, that we should have a devil? Why did the Lord just kill him long ago? Because he should not do without him. We need the devil and a great many of those who do his bidding just to keep men straight, that we may learn place of our dependence upon God and trust in him and to observe his laws and keep his commandments. I think Lehi said in 2 Nephi, opposition is necessary in all things. And this is just what John Taylor has observed here, that without the opposition, sometimes we can become complacent. It keeps us on our toes. It keeps us dependent on the Lord and to follow him. Chapter 12, verse 12 reads, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle are the gifts of the spirit, you know, visions, healings, tongues. He's saying all of those were manifest with you. You should have recognized these as gifts of the Lord's anointed. They are also gifts available to all disciples and the fruits of the spirit. We'll talk about more in Galatians, but they are equally accessible to all disciples who come unto Christ. He continues on in chapter 12 to talk about his motivation. He's saying, I'm writing you because I'm trying to come. I want to spend my winter with you. I got a visit planned for this is the third time I'm ready to come to you. That's the NASB translation. But in the King James, it sounds like it will be his third visit. That's not quite what the Greek says. And that's not quite right either. As you recall from the book of Acts, he came on his mission, his second mission, and then he came at the end of his third mission. Verse 19 says, we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. I love this statement by Paul because it's a beautiful bridge back to the book of Moses. Do you remember in the restoration, we receive Moses chapter one, verse 39. My work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And Paul says, the whole reason why I work is to edify, is to bring you to Christ. They have parallels there between those two. Still in chapter 12, verse 20 in the BSB reads, when I am afraid that when I come, there may be quarreling and jealousies and rage and rivalry and slander and gossip, arrogance and disorder, and many have not repented. This is in the BSB. And so he starts right into chapter 13 on this same correction. He says in verse two, I told you before, and I foretell you, skipping down, to them which heretofore have sinned, I will not spare. You know, he said, this letter has been full of compassion and love. But I want you to know that if you are living in sin and profaning the atonement of Jesus Christ, I will come and discipline you. There's no room for this. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, there was somebody who had married his father's wife and there was immorality going on in the church. And Chloe had told him about these things. He's still very concerned that not everyone has repented. So I think that was one of the reports that Titus gave. 
Also in chapter 13, verse 3 and 4 read, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, that's the BSB, he goes on in verse 4 to say, He was indeed crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power, and though we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live in him to serve you. He is a masterful writer. He's a great orator, but he also is a beautiful poet. And look at these parallels here. And I know the language is tricky sometimes, but if you can pull out a few of these kernels, Paul makes beautiful comparisons to the Savior and what really matters. He also now talks about examining ourselves. It reminded me back earlier when we were told in 1 Corinthians to examine yourselves before you partake of the sacrament. But now here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the NIV reads, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. This is such a beautiful message. We have to be all in. Are you feeling the Spirit every day? Don't, don't leave. Read, pray, seek the Lord. Get a calling. Magnify that calling. Examine yourself. How better can I live the commandment so that I can feel the Spirit, so I can be a servant for God? Verse 7 to 9 in the BSB of chapter 13 reads, Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Our prayer is for your perfection. Remember that word perfection is complete and whole. And he finishes up in verse 10. This is why I write these things while I am absent, so that when I am present, I will, and then he skips ahead a little bit, use the authority of the Lord gave me in building you up. And finally, he ends in chapter 13, verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. But Joseph Smith changes it. He doesn't change very many verses that have doctrinal significance here in 2 Corinthians, but this one he does. He changes the holy kiss to holy salutation because what part of the Joseph Smith translation is, is not going back to what Paul originally said, but it's making it communicated to a generation where you don't go around and kiss everybody on the cheeks like you did in the Latin countries. The Lord is guiding his church according to our language and our understanding. So he says, have your communications be holy. Do things in the name of the Lord. And every time you're going to communicate with anyone, do it with holiness. And then verse 14 ends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and your fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Eight times in Paul's letter, he closes with this same consistent phrase. Sometimes it's about peace or Christ or love or the spirit or grace, but it's always be with you all. It's a beautiful conclusion to his letters. This is a fabulous book. I love the messages that he teaches us. It's not a systematized list of our theology. It is a very personal friendship letter where a leader is having to point out some faults but he's doing it with love and charity. And it's a great example on how we can do the same. It's also a great example of how we can come into Christ, even in our weaknesses. And I assume that we will have more persecution in the future. And I pray that we, like Paul, can use those times of hardships to draw closer to the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.